Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Anyway, so good evening. Um, my name is Barbara Kane. I'm the head of the School of Philosophical and Historical Inquiry, which is the school in which the Department of Archaeology is located. Um, and I'd like to welcome you all here this evening to the 2018 McNichol Lecture. As we prepare to listen to a lecture about an ancient civilization and culture, it's important to acknowledge an even older culture that is linked directly to us and to the place on which we meet, um, which is the, and to pay our respect to the traditional owners of the land on which the University of Sydney is built, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the university is built, and we acknowledge that it's been a place of learning and culture over many, many centuries. The McNichol Lecture, as many of you know, serves to honour the memory of Anthony McNichol, a very gifted archaeologist whose promising career was cut short by his tragic and early death in 1985. And it aims to honour that memory by bringing to Australia major international scholars working in the wide range of areas that, in which Ant was interested. Indeed, we talked about it once, and he was interested in everything, so sometimes the selection's a little hard to make. The lectureship was established by donations from the McNichol family and um, many friends, of whom I am one, um, and from former colleagues and students. I'm very pleased to welcome here the other friends of the McNichol family, but also more particularly the members of the McNichol family, and especially Anne's immediate family, Tamara, their two sons, Jesse and Arian, and their granddaughter, Nora. So it's very great pleasure to have you here, and I'd now like to turn to Professor Barbara Helving, who's the Edwin Cuthbert Professor of Middle Eastern Archaeology, to introduce our guest. Yeah, good evening. And I would also like to start by joining Barbara Kane in paying respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, on whose ancestral lands the University of Sydney is built. It's a pleasure here to introduce Professor Marcella Frangipane, this year's um, Magnical Fellow who will give the presentation of tonight. Marcella Frangipan is a full professor of prehistory and protohistory at the University La Sapienza of Rome, where she teaches the prehistory and protohistory of the Near and Middle East, but also strategies and methods of archaeological research. Uh, she holds a number of internationally renowned uh, awards and memberships, at the Italian Accademia Nazionale dei Lincei. Uh, she is a foreign associate member of the American National Academy of Sciences in the, US, in the United States. She is a corresponding member of the German Archaeological Institute in Berlin and of the American Institute of Archaeology, the chief editor of the journal Origini and the editor of two monograph series they are all based more or less at the University La Sapienza in Rome. So with all these honors and all this introduction, I'm very happy to welcome Marcella here and she will talk to us now about the topic, the birth of the state, and of course Ars Antep is gonna be prominent, but it's not the only site that will appear here. Welcome you all.
So first of all, let me think, uh, and first of all, let me thank uh, Barbara and all the colleagues from Sydney University, from the McNichol uh, School, and uh, to all the public that is here so numerous. So it's an honor for me, and I hope that I will give you some satisfying information on what you expect from me. So, uh, speaking about the birth of state is not an easy thing, as you can imagine. And first of all, I have to address some very general hints about what I mean when I speak about state. What is a state? Uh, because we are used to think in the state as the present-day uh, political form that we know. Uh, but what I'm going to speak is the very beginning of this form of a political organization. So, uh, the concept I want to express is that, uh, in my opinion, when I speak about a state, I speak about a political system that is based on a centralized government of a hierarchically ordered society. Uh, whose leaders and or institutions are also capable, at least to some extent, to interfere in the economic management of the community, allocating and redistributing wealth. But there are various types and forms of state, according to the different types of societies in which state arose, and they show various types and degrees of invasiveness in the community economy and social life, as well as various degrees of maturity of the system. So, speaking about the birth of state, as I told you, I will speak about the early form of state, uh, meaning with this term, early state, uh, not only a chronological step in the evolution of this form of social and political organization, but something that has qualitatively distinct features. Um, the state as a complex of institution and more generally as a political system has indeed a long history of development, transformation and consolidation processes. The socio-political system I'm going to describe represents the very beginning of this long and varied process. This society certainly manifests social and economic hierarchies and were governed by a central power and political authority. But the relations among the social components involved are often still in process of changing and not yet definitely established. These systems are usually flexible and dynamic in the sense that though they are new social-political structures considerably different from the basically egalitarian pre-state societies from which I think the state developed, uh, they were not yet stable and solid. In some cases, these formative early-state societies are moving in the direction of the consolidation of the new hierarchical social and political order, increasingly institutionalizing the structures and functions of the central government. In other cases, they conversely appear to be in a delicate and fragile equilibrium, 
still having to face social conflicts and resistance, which sometimes make them prone to collapse. It is well known that one of the regions where the process of formations of early state to societies took place for the first time was the so-called Near East. A mosaic of regions closely interrelated each other more than with any other region outside its, its external border. So why we speak about Near East? Since in this concept we have different countries, different civilization, different kind of evolution. Because in fact, all these developments were related to each other much more than with other societies outside this border. And this is something that has been defined very well uh, for another area of the world, that is Mesoamerica, by Paul Kirchhoff, who spoke about Mesoamerica in these terms. So, um, this type of interrelation between all these regions started in the Neolithic. So, when the first agricultural society started to develop. And so, the first sedentary societies emerged, uh, and the society uh, underwent a radical and somehow definite change. The various regions of these mosaics were, however, also different from one another in terms of their ecology, climate, resources, subsistence strategies, and social structures, and were the theater of the development of different, though continuously interrelated cultures. I would try to focus here on the variability of the dynamics that brought to the formation of early state societies in this vast and varied region also rediscussing some traditional concepts and approach to this phenomenon, such as the idea that the birth of state was intimately correlated everywhere with the birth of cities. I don't think this is true. So in some cases, yes, in others, no. Um, I will briefly focus on the dynamics through which the interaction between different environmental conditions agricultural potentials and original local economic and social structures brought about various forms of early centralized systems conditioning their different features and outcomes. Egypt, Mesopotamia, Anatolia, Iran, the Levant was the theater of somehow parallel and to some extent interrelated phenomena which, however, had different paths and brought to different forms and degrees of central power. Since this all-encompassing comparison cannot be addressed in a lecture, I will focus on one of the main areas traditionally considered the core of the earliest emergence of a pristine state and urban societies, the so-called Greater Mesopotamia which includes the whole vast cultural world revolving around the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, from the Persian Gulf to the Zagros, Piedmont, and southeastern Anatolian mountains. This vast and composite world, while being characterized by close cultural interactions and parallel formative phenomena from at least the 6th millennium BC, shows a variety of natural environments uh, climatic conditions, 
and cultural, economic, and sociopolitical developments. I will distinguish within this area uh, and compare uh, what we call southern Mesopotamia, with its vast and arid alluvial plains, which was the seat of an impressive urbanization phenomenon, northern Mesopotamia, with a mosaic of environmentally varied regions and territorially diversified settlement patterns and subsistence systems, and the mountainous range surrounding the Mesopotamian plains to the north and northeast, which were traditionally considered peripheries of the Mesopotamian world, whereas today, thanks to new plentiful archaeological data, increasingly appear to have been active and creative participants in the phenomena concerned. Southern Mesopotamia, that coincides with the alluvial plain of the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, is the area where the roots of unequal, hierarchical and centralized societies seem to lay. This was a region characterized by potentials and resources of various kinds, including extensive plain lands suitable for cereal crops. Other zones, more suitable for horticulture, coastal and various lagoon and marshy lands with plentiful fish and other water resources, pasture lands, both in the Zagros hilly flanks and in the, in the same alluvial plains, where cattle have been successfully bred. This region, on the whole, was, however, seriously exposed to risks because of the hot climate. The low rainfall and the water lodging of the soils prone to salinization. The vast plains suitable for cereals offered great production potential, provided that people were able to control water flow and regularly distribute it to the fields. On the other hand, the marshy lands may have been also productive if controlling the excess of water due to the frequent flooding events. I agree with the old theory proposed by uh, the recently uh, died um, and great scholar Robert Adams, that it was precisely the ecological differences in a restricted area that was probably one of the main inputs to the early developments of economic centralization and the related redistribution process, which have characterized Mesopotamian societies. Redistribution activities were based on the centralization of staples, mainly foodstuff, by the leaders of the communities, and were often carried out in public and elite environments, particularly in ceremonial contexts in the earliest phases. They made it possible for products to widely circulate among different sectors of the population, hence attenuating the effects of food scarcity and micro-crises that might have arisen in some ecological zones. This type of coordination and economic control was probably fostered by a structure of the society that appears to have been based from the beginning, the beginning of the occupation of this plain lands that was uh, quite late in comparison to other regions near, nearby. Um, <coughs> so, uh, based on a kind of stratified and unequal, probably kinship-based, uh, 
system uh, that, uh, be, that make uh, the dif different large and competitive households um, archaeologically evidenced already in the 5th millennium BC. How we can say this? Because from the beginning of the occupation of this plain lands, that is what we call obeyed period, so the 5th millennium BC and end of 6th millennium BC, large standardized houses, so these are the temples, so sorry, I'm we will go back to this later. Uh, large standardized tripartite houses, isolated one from the other, and hence clearly recognizable, probably housed extended families as distinct and perhaps competing social units. The larger size of one or two of these houses in, in some villages, particularly in one of the few extensively excavated settlements of the Obeid period in the Mesopotamian borderlands, uh, together with some special architectural features and items found inside these houses, particularly the, what you see here, the house a number uh, named A, um, where have, have been found uh, a concentration of so-called tokens, so small clay uh, pieces with geometrical shapes that are probably related to accounting system and controlling system of, of uh, goods. And under the floor of this house, there was a concentration of child burials, infant burials mainly. Uh, that is significant in terms of, the, uh, of the, what this may mean from the society. I mean, the concentrated, these were certainly not only children from this family. So the, the children uh, for died in, from many other families were buried under this house. So they are giving to this house a special role and function in terms of ideological and ritual concept. Uh, so, um, in this kind of intrinsically hierarchically and probably competitive societies, the leaders may have been the members of high-status families or kinship groups. A kinship system based on hierarchical descent, such as, for example, the privileged rights of the firstborn may have given rise to inequalities. While these differences were not necessarily associated with economic privileges initially, it is highly probable that certain high-ranking individuals were invested with increasing political and religious authority, and perhaps also with the power to coordinate production by centralizing and redistributing staple commodities, crops, livestock, fish, dairy products. This coordination, which was probably an effective response to the difficulties of the environment, optimizing food security in such a potentially productive but high-risk land, may have fostered the perception of a crucial role performed by the emerging leaders, giving them the right to interfere in the basic economic system of the population and legitimizing their power. Lower Mesopotamia also show, uh, shows an early emergence of architecturally monumental, probably religious, cultic buildings. 
in which evidence of ceremonial food distribution was found. It is likely that were the high-rank figures to manage the rituals and the ceremonial food distribution in the temples, which were the main places in which the community leaders seemed to have performed their activities that were at the same time political, ceremonial and economic. There are unfortunately very few new archaeological data on this region, but Thanks to the information obtained from past and present landscape and territorial studies, combined with old data from the excavation of a few 5th millennium sites and large 4th millennium centers, such as the big city of Urukwarka, we may convincingly reconstruct an impressive urbanization phenomenon and the gradual development of a highly centralized organization led by political and religious authorities interfering in the basic economic life of the population. The ability of the leaders to increasingly get involved in the primary production system, male agriculture and animal breeding, allowed them to increasingly accumulate stable resources and economic power. You can see here some images from seals from the 4th millennium BC, where uh, offering of food to the temples and agricultural and animal breeding activity are stressed in the iconography of these seals. Since foodstuffs could not be stored because they were perishable, they must have been constantly reinvested, gradually generating a kind of entrepreneurial system which exploited the work of an increasingly large number of individuals, remunerating them with food. This circuit, which probably began in a ritualized form in the fifth millennium, must have gradually been expanded to further accumulate resources, which in the fourth millennium BC were not only limited to commodities, but also included the basic means of production, land and livestock. So this leader probably became owner of some of these means of production. This made it possible to obtain increasing quantities of staple goods, which were in turn reinvested in labor and also in the production of new commodities. This system generated profit, and increasing numbers of individuals were becoming impoverished and in need of support thereby further fueling the system. Thousands of mass-produced bowls to redistribu redistribute food and hundreds of seal impressions that we call cretule, with, with a Latin name that is, uh, uh, has been used by Cicerone in, in Rome time, in Roman time, but is useful because we can avoid the many terms that have been used for defining this kind of objects. As well as more than 3,000 pictographic tablets recording economic transactions, mainly distributions of food rations and allocation of land and livestock, have been found in the largest public ceremonial area of the Eanna precinct in the big city of Urukuarca. They unequivocally reveal an impressive control over labor force and the management of means of production, particularly staples, already at the end of the fourth millennium BC. 
In this context, the ideological and religious legitimation of the authorities and their right duty to manage the public affairs must have been an essential factor for ensuring the running of the system and its political and social solidity. This power, which was also by now economic power, continued to enjoy a legitimacy linked to the cultic sphere. The large sacred Deanna precinct at Uruk, which occupied a vast zone in the center of the city, consisted of numerous architecturally different buildings that were probably the headquarters of many different public activities, including the economic and administrative practices. The iconography of the late Uruk, that is the period uh, we call this, uh, with this term the second half of fourth millennium BC, illustrates the close relationship between the so-called king-priest, the temple, and the public and ceremonial management of food as the three key elements holding up this system of centralized power, which characterized the political economy of the early Mesopotamian rulers in the fourth millennium, and probably earlier. It is interesting to notice that the representation found on the glyptic of the late Turk period ideologically emphasized the offerings to temple, namely the goods that must have entered to fuel this circuit that revolved around food redistribution practices. A depiction of the conception of the world and social order expressed and imposed by Mesopotamian elites to their people in the later period can be found in the famous Warka vase. Here, the superimposition of figurative registers with plants, animals, commoners, and elite and divine personages seems to reflect the ideology of the stratification of the universe, with the dominance of the highest figures over the submitted realms and their relations with the sacred sphere. Cretule, so clay ceilings, and mass-produced bowls show the vast scale of administratively controlled food circulation and redistribution. Ceiling practices became the most effective tool to control both the circulation of goods and the people involved in the transactions in a highly articulated and complex society. Administration and bureaucracy, by delegating power to administrators, made it possible for the authority to exercise control over a wider territory. Increasing numbers of productive activities were brought into the centralized economic system, as evidenced from the pictographic tablets on which the lexical list mentioned craftsmen of various kinds hierarchically organized. We do not know whether these artisans were employees of the central institutions or whether they took commissions from them. Yet, by the end of the fourth millennium BC, the central institution certainly exhibited an increasing power to also control some sectors or parts of craft productions, perhaps simply by increasing the demand for artisanal products and facilitating the internal exchange of staple and artisanal goods. The efficiency of this centralized system is in improving the agricultural capacity of the territory, together with the well-rooted hierarchical and social structure and the high level of specialization, 
also created the basis for another important phenomenon, phenomenon that became a distinctive feature of the history of Lower Mesopotamia, that is urbanization. The growth of very large cities in the Mesopotamian alluvium was an extraordinary phenomenon, very likely linked to the possibility to feed such a high number of persons living in cities of more than 150 hectares. Thanks to the outcome of the great agricultural productivity achieved in this region. Urbanization played a key role in the stability of this complex system made of interacting components governed by powerful central institutions. In addition to being a physical concentration of people, the city is indeed a political, economic and social space that produces an organic system of relations between specialized and interdependent components economic, social and political sectors, both within the city itself and in the surrounding territory, which makes the system solid and difficult to subvert. In an urban society, the involvement of the territory was based on a structural and not occasional relationship, thereby making the territory an essential part of the whole integrated system. As Andrew Sherratt has brilliantly argued, it is not only a matter of rural goods being transferred to the city and artisanal goods being transferred into the countryside, but something much more profound and complex, which involves various types of interactions, deeply transforming both production and exchange relations. If you think about our city, you can clearly understand what I mean. So we are not able to go back to a previous system because we need for our subsistence many things that we cannot produce anymore. Since the city turns the entire socioeconomic system and requires structural forms of central coordination, even though an urban structure is not always present in every emerging centralized political system, its formation usually came about in close conjunction with the rise of state systems, fostering their development and giving stability to them. An intensive urbanization of the territory the efficient conduction of agricultural and stable production, a sophisticated administration and bureaucracy, which by delegating power to various officials made it possible for the authority to exercise a wide and diffuse control, as well as the deeply rooted stratified social structure and its religious legitimation, all ensured stability to the political and economic system in Lower Mesopotamia that continued to grow even in the third millennium and later. Economic strategies based on controlling staple goods and the labor force and the resultant powerful interference in the population's primary economy by emerging political hierarchies was also the distinctive feature of the emergence of early state societies throughout the broader Mesopotamian world in the fourth millennium, creating a radical distinction between these societies and others in the Near East, such as Western Anatolia and the Levant, in which nascent are in this, so in the Mesopotamian society, high-ranking groups, no, sorry, in the other society, high-ranking groups wielded less influential power 
on the daily life of the population. So in, in what we, from what we know from Western Anatolia, uh, for example, si uh, si famous sites like Troy, that is very famous, no, it's a city, but it's a city not in the sense that I have just described. It's a small center where there is a political elite dominate, politically dominating and controlling very small territory, but with, with very few influence on the basic economic life of the population, in my opinion, at least. Uh, so, the northern regions, so the situation is different um, in the other regions of the so-called Greater Mesopotamia, uh, in the northern regions of Greater Mesopotamia, varied, mm, that varied widely in terms of uh, ecosystem, uh, ranging from narrower Middle Euphrates and Middle Tigris valleys, where the arable land was rather limited in extension, to the vast steppic hillies and plainlands of the Jezira, so the, the northern Mesopotamia proper, to the Taurus and northern, northwestern Zagros foothills and mountains suitable for grazing. It was in this vast and varied environment that Neolithic societies developed a community-based economic organization, very egalitarian. Exploiting the varied territory of the Jezira in specialized and probably coordinated ways. Specialized hunting, of onagers and gazelles in semi-arid steppes, rain-fed farming in areas with sufficient rainfall, sheep and goat rearing in hilly areas and foothills. A clear indication of this kind of organization by year-round or seasonally specialized groups from the earliest phases of Pottery Neolithic in the 7th and 6th millennium BC were the small settlements of so-called Hasuna and Halaf periods dedicated to the seasonal hunting of onagers and gazelle and the emergence in various, various villages of large collective store buildings for the conservation, either of game, as at Umdabagia, or agricultural produce, probably cereals, as in the site of Sabiabiad. So this, this building are certainly storehouse and they are so big that they cannot be related to single individual houses. They are for, for the collective community. <coughs> the very early emergence in the stores of Sabia Biad of hundreds of clay ceilings bearing the impressions of numerous different seals, uh, and the fact that the ceilings had been subsequently set aside in some small rooms, the rooms that you see uh, colored in red, where several hundreds have been found. Uh, so this uh, indicates uh, a, a, a kind, the origin of a kind of system uh, of administratively controlling the food redistribution practices and using the removed ceilings for recording and checking the performed transactions. So why we have 100 ceiling that has been already removed from the container they had sealed 
set aside in one small room. And of course, this is not completely clear from this settlement, but what we found in Aslantepe, that I will show you in a few minutes, uh, have demonstrated, in my opinion, in a very unequivocally way, that this material has been used for accounting and recording the transactions. So they had no writing at that time. So they cannot write or take note of anything, but the sealing that bear the seal that is personal, so the seal is like a signature of the person who did the transaction, uh, indicate the persons who did the transaction, how many times they did the transaction, because how many seal, sealings you have in your uh, storeroom. So this system probably started in the Neolithic, and there was a way of controlling uh, the circulation of goods in a very egalitarian way at that time. So the situation changed in the course. Uh, 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 sorry, there is another point that I want to stress, that is the kind of seal designs that have been found in this uh, Neolithic place. Uh, these are, uh, as you can see here, uh, grouped by, by iconographic families. So each seal is distinct from the other, but you can group them in, in groups, for, for example, with the goat, with the vegetal uh, elements, with geometric things. So probably this was referring to clans, to groups of people, villages, who knows? Because this type of iconography changed completely in the subsequent periods when this uh, sealing system became uh, a, a way of controlling the uh, food circulation in the hand of high-status persons. So in that case, you don't have this kind of uh, uh, group identity, but individual identities. So the situation changed uh, in the course of the 5th millennium BC in the north, when increasing contacts and interaction with the southern Mesopotamian societies and the parallel difficulties of the local Halaf communities to manage increasingly expanding population in the framework of a collective egalitarian organization gave rise to significant changes in the social and political relationships of the northern Mesopotamian society. The southern Mesopotamian model was adopted also in these regions with adaptation to local traits and traditions, thus creating a new society. At the same time, the successful experiment of systematic administration of the redistribution practices in the collective storehouse of the Neolithic period spread everywhere, both in the south and in the north, and from being a tool aimed at guaranteeing the equal distribution of resources became a very effective tool of domination and control in the hand of privileged groups and individuals. This is what we have uh, in the north, in the famous site of Tepegaura, 
uh, where uh, at the end of, of the fifth millennium, we have this kind of arrangement of the settlement with a concentration, a peculiar concentration of ceilings in the main house of the village. So uh, it is clear that the majority of transactions were done or under the control of this family. Um, but the society uh, in the north were fairly varied. This is another, another level of Tepegaura where we have the concentration in the public area, in the temple area. Uh, so uh, the society in the north were fairly varied in their types of environmental adaptation, subsistence strategies, and social organization. It was no coincidence that in the fourth millennium BC, urbanization in the full sense of the term only occurred in the Habur area, that is this part of central, northern, central part of northern Mesopotamia, which was a peculiar ecological niche uh, with large plains and plentiful water availability, where there was a potential for increasing the agricultural output to such an extent that it could sustain a large urban population. The main urban site of this region was Telbrak, which reached a size of about 100 hectares in the 4th millennium BC and showed monumental architecture at least since the beginning of the 4th millennium BC. Seals and ceilings, as well as the, ap the appearance of prototypes of numerical tablets, reveal the performance, also in the Kabur area, of fairly widespread redistribution and administrative practices carried out in elite and public context, and probably also in private environments, as suggested by the finding of numerous ceilings in a house of the nearby site of Tel Amukar. This is a, a, a house, and the red dots are clay ceilings. So you can see the intensity of the activity that was conducted in this house. Telbrak certainly became a political, administrative and probably religious and economic center in the second half of the fourth millennium BC, but it is most of all a clear example of a real city, similar in size to the southern Mesopotamian ones. You have here Uruk that reached more than 200 hectares and Telbrak of about 100 hectares. Uh, even though the rise of centralized economic and political systems was fairly widespread in, in, in various regions of northern Mesopotamia, the exclusive presence of a truly urban phenomenon in the well-watered plains of the Kabur Basin once more highlights the caus causal relationship between great potential for agricultural production, forms of central control on this production, and urbanization. The city and its government institution were certainly attractive for the population living in the area. <coughs> A phenomenon widely highlighted at Brac is the increasing concentration of small sites around the increasingly expanding city, Sites that seem to have had specialized specific functions in connection with the main center, as Augusta McMahon has suggested. 
All these evidences suggest that BRAC had a strong impact on its territory and that new political and economic strategies were implemented in connection with the growth of the urban life, making the local population less autonomous than before and attracting it in various ways toward the centers, both by pushing a progressive incoming in the city itself and by exercising an attraction on villages and rural communities to get closer to the directional center in order to interact more efficiently with it. The more favorable rainfall rate and agricultural management, on the other hand, probably left a greater degree of autonomy to the rural population, apparently generating a different type of relationship between the city and its territory compared to southern Mesopotamia. The enormous and continuous growth of the city of Uruk seems to have demanded an increasingly large territory around it. totally dominating its interland and sending the population away, so to create a vast, nearly empty space with only small villages, perhaps as a component of the urban environment designed to support and feed its inhabitants. The city of Telbrak in the north appears to have conversely attracted population around it in a more dynamic, engaging and interactive system of territorial relations. Hierarchical and centralized societies of the Mesopotamian type also developed in the northernmost periphery, so-called periphery of Greater Mesopotamia, that is Anatolian Upper Euphrates Valley. Even though the climate was favorable and the high rainfall rate allowed this population to easily carry out a very productive agriculture, well integrated with animal husbandry and pastoralism, no real urban phenomenon has been identified in these regions. Here, the lack of wide-ranging plainlands and the presence of, presence of mountains probably uh, hampered the sufficiently broad expansion of agriculture to support the formation of large urban centers, while environmental diversity appears to have encouraged the economic integration of various components, including mobile pastoralist groups, favored by the presence of rich pasture lands and the easy access to vertical transhumans. In this region, an extraordinary example of the development of a powerful early state center is Arslan Tepe, when, as Barbara said, I have been working for 42 years. A site which, despite being the largest mound in the region, does not exceed five hectares in size, making it a small site in Mesopotamian terms. The growth of a ruling elite is attested in the site at least from the beginning of the fourth millennium BC, in the so-called uh, period seven, when it was already a local powerful center without any clear indication of southern influence. In this period, the settlement reached its max maximum expansion, densely occupying the whole mound, and a sharp social and symbolic differentiation between the areas occupied has been evidenced, with monumental elite buildings on the top of the ancient mound, 
and common houses on the slopes and on the margins of the settlement. It is on the highest part of the old mound that a complex of stout buildings were found with walls some 1 meter 20 centimeter uh, thick, decorated with wall paintings and on white plaster and with mud brick columns lined up along the walls. This is another building of the same district. They do not show any traces of public activities and appear to have been residences of high-ranking families. This is the, what we have excavated so far. That is quite a large area with all these big buildings, uh, with imposing walls, with decoration on the walls, but uh, with, with ovens and fireplaces, but without any ceiling, without any traces of interaction with the community. Um, so, the, where this kind of public activity took place, unlike Mesopotamia, no evidence of administrative activities be found in this building, but it was found in large quantities in public ceremonial buildings, probably temples, which were built adjacent to the elite residences and in continuity with them in the last phase of the, of the, the so-called period 7, that is more or less 3500 BC. The two buildings that you see here, so these and part of another one here, these are the residences, so-called Temple C and Temple D, both yielded hundreds of mass-produced bowls and hundreds of clay ceilings, partly found in one of the side rooms of Temple C, partly discarded in successive damp layers in a dismissed corner stair room in Temple D. You can see here the quantity of bowls. More than 1,000 bowls have been found in this building, only in Temple C, only in one of these two buildings. Uh, that, of course, were partly entire, partly broken. They were restored afterwards, but they were partly entire. So they were thrown away after being used or after a while. And together with this, clay ceilings, so seal impressions on clay. This is a reconstruction of what um, should have been the main hall in the main temple. These are part, uh, some of the more than 200 ceilings that have been found dumped in this small uh, staircase room. They were thrown away after being used. And this is a system that uh, uh, in some way uh, precede what we will see more clearly in the palace period, so immediately afterwards I will show you. So, what I mean is that the ceilings, after being put aside, you have seen there were ceilings in the main cor in the corner uh, room in Temple C, in the, on, in the room, so they were probably accounted or controlled afterwards, and after this control, the ceilings were discarded in groups. So the, the groups of what we found in these small layers correspond 
to, uh, we can say, bags or basket or whatever, with seals representing the same transactions. And this is clear because we studied not, not yet this, because they have been found last year and two years ago, so we are in, in the process of being studied, but the ones we have found in the palace later, I will show you in a few minutes, uh, each small layer correspond, so contain ceilings with the same kind of uh, sealed vessels or sealed containers and the same kind and the same kind of seal impressions. So this means the same persons that did some kind of operations, grouped by, by types and then thrown away in this ordered way. This means, in my opinion, necessarily that they were counted before, controlled, and then thrown away by, in groups. And when they threw them away, this is another important point, they are not uh, scattered in the environment, dispersed in the environment. They are put inside the building, in a place that they did not use anymore, but were under control, because these were documents were the equivalent of documents. So, um, the ceilings, uh, okay, show all, so, so the, the images they show are mainly animals, are different kind of iconographies. The, these iconographies have some relation with Northern Mesopotamia, but at the same time are adapted to local taste and um, local concept. A great development and at the same time a radical change occurred around 3400 BC in a period that we call period 6a and that corresponds to the late Uruk phase in Urukwarka. So the phase with tablets with a lot of ceilings. The temples were abandoned and replaced by a huge and ever-expanding monumental complex. This is the, the the earliest core of this new type of public uh, complex, but this expanded and became very large and occupied more than 3,000 square meters in the area that we have excavated so far, but it's larger than this. So this uh, group of buildings that are all connected each other, uh, can be considered uh, to have been the earliest example of a palace that has ever been discovered so far in the Near East. The contact with the public was not anymore in a sacred area dominated by temples, but in a huge courtyard. This one here. Uh, which did not exhibit, uh, so in this courtyard where people gathered and were received by the authority in an imposing building at the edge of the courtyard, which did not exhibit any element resembling any kind of religious function. This is the courtyard and this is the building. This building has walls that are almost two meters thick. That means it should have been very, very high. And we have proof, archaeological proof, stratigraphic proof of 
at least two floor, two story. <coughs> so, uh, in this building there is no trace of any cultic activity, uh, but here a series of aligned platform indicate the places where the persons in authority was standing or probably sitting, giving audience to people who were standing in front of him and at predetermined fixed points according to well-codified secular ceremonies. So you can see this platform here and this other small platform in front of it. Uh, and the platform has three steps that were more symbolic than real uh, useful uh, steps. Uh, and we found a lot of wood, charred wood, because the, the building was burnt. Among the wood found on the platform, we only found small woods, small pieces of wood with uh, eight, nine centimeters of diameter, so they are not the beams collapsed in the room from the roof, of juniper wood, different from pine, oak, and other wood found in the room. So what I think that this was a furniture, probably a seat, probably a throne-like seat, because the person had to stay there, sit there, because the visibility of this point also from the entrance of the palace is clear. And if we look at this comparison that is of course uh, after uh, many centuries later uh, from Mari, from the Mari Palace in Syria, you can see the resemblance of the two uh, elements. That were this in Mari was exactly in the same position. It was a small room opening opening towards a large courtyard. So there is a kind of codification, standardization of the way of uh, giving uh, homage to the authority that became so codified that sometimes it's still the same today. We have similar things. So, the building interestingly communicated with the residences on the back side of the uh, big room. Two small temples in the palace have shown to be the seat of cult practices and the consumption of meals reserved, reserved only for a few. Perhaps the ruling elite, unlike the previous temples of period 7, people seem to have been excluded by ceremonies and cult practices. So, we have very few bowls here, just three or four. The entrance to the main hall is through a side room. There is no direct entrance. People did not enter the main hall. They were probably outside. Uh, and the faunal remains found in this building is different from what we found in the temples and what we found in the palace in the storerooms. So here there is a, a quantity of cattle and adult cattle, uh, much, much greater than in the other context where sheep and goat were prevailing. So cattle, as you can imagine, is something that means a rich meal. 
for, for rich people. Not, it's not uh, easy to, to kill a cattle, it's a real capital. And also the uh, difference in the uh, paintings and decoration on the walls. In the temples of the previous period, the walls were decorated inside the main hall. We have this painting in one of the in Temple C, and this beautiful decoration that we reconstructed here, uh, here with a, a drawing because it was collapsed, uh, but remained entire on the floor. Uh, so these were decorated rooms, and where the main hall, where people go in and consume the food in a kind of ceremonial context. In the new temples in the palace, the decorations are outside, where people had to stand and outside the main hall, so in the, in the side room. Uh, <coughs> so it would therefore appear that the process had begun to exclude the population from the collective ceremonial religious event, and the authority was exercised in a broad space where people gathered and the ruler appeared publicly and acted directly without any religious mediation. Even though the religious legitimacy of the leaders must still have been the main rationale for the consensus to their authority and the stability of their power, as evidenced by the symbolic importance of the linkage between cult ceremonies in Temple B and high-status groups, the ways and the public practices through which the authority of the rulers was exercised seemed to have radically changed, becoming more secular, while the separation and the ideological detachment of the ruling elite from the rest of the population grew wider. Even the iconography of power expressed in seals and paintings in the Atlantepe Palace seemed to have referred to agriculture and related activities, whereas differently from southern Mesopotamia, does not show any clear reference to the ritual or religious sphere. We don't have images with temples or with ceremonial acts, as in Mesopotamia, where they are prevailing. In its huge and monumental early palatial complex, in addition to a wide variety of public functions, redistribution of food took place in a secular way, in central stores and courtyards. The data obtained at Arslantepe confirmed that the goods accumulated and centrally managed were essentially food. These are the reconstructions that have been made according to several different studies by several different persons of the distribution of the vessels. These are the real vessels because we found them all broken, of course. We reconstructed them and according to the position of each individual shirt, we could reconstruct the original position of the vessels. And we know that there was a second floor. Uh, <coughs> so, this, so the, fa the fact that it was food uh, is evidenced also from the type of small storerooms not designed for long storage of durable wealth, but full of vessels, pitoyan jars, probably containing processed food, probably prepared meals, which had to be continuously re-put into circulation. 
large numbers of cretules, or clay ceilings, that are the red dots here, were concentrated only in one of these rooms, that was the redistribution storeroom, whereas the other, was, there was no ceilings and no bolts. You can see in the reconstruction of the drawings. So, uh, this large number of cretule and mass-produced bowls were connected with food management and distribution to large number of people in a non-cultic environment. These people must have therefore been workers, offering their labor and service to the central institutions and being compensated with food. These are, the, uh, again, the ceilings put aside in a corner of the room, and some of them have been found in the filling layer of the room that were in situ layers, not afterwards uh, filling. Uh, and so we can we consider that part of them had been brought to the upper story before accounting and before throwing away. An enormous concentration of administrative material, consisting of more than 2,200 well-preserved ceilings bearing the impression of 211 different seals, with a variety of forms, styles and iconographies, have been found on the hall in the palace, and the majority of them was concentrated in damps, that are the red um, rooms, where the ceilings had been discarded after use and after having been checked and probably counted, as I told you before. This is one, the stratigraphy of one of these um, damp places, where, as you can see here, from, from each group of layers, we have different type of containers, different quantity, different doors, because there were also ceiling on the door uh, of the storerooms. <coughs> so, uh, this ceiling operation must all have taken places, uh, place on the spot, and the very large number of seals is therefore indicative of the extraordinary size of the bureaucratic administrative apparatus. Bureaucracy was born with the delegation of a large amount of tasks and responsibility to a large number of individuals. These uh, ceilings belonged to only to people who had sealed door, so storerooms. Not all of them, the majority have only sealed pots or sacks, so they were people withdrawing the goods. While the system uh, appears to be wholly similar to the Mesopotamian one, the glyptics reveal a rich and original local production, mainly consisting of stamp seals, which refer, if anything, to the northern tradition and with a tiny percentage of cylinders, only some with Uruk-influenced subjects. The monumentality and planning, the architectural and functional differentiation between sectors, uh, recognizable thanks to the extraordinary state of conservation of the buildings and the materials found inside them, and their close linkage, which made up a unitary joined-up whole, using the slope to raise different buildings with different symbolic and functional values at different altitudes, 
make it possible to define this exceptional architectural complex as a very early form of a full-fledged palace. The audience building remained the political heart of the whole complex until the end, as shown by the concern to ensure that the platform throne occupied an overriding, uh, overriding visible position from the very entrance to the palace, even after adding new sectors. The linkage between this building and the elite residences mm, on the mound, uh, by closely uniting the residential unit and the public areas into a single hall, also strengthens the interpretation of the Aslantepe complex as a first anomalous and original experiment of a Near Eastern palace. The political economy of the Aslantepe rulers does not seem to have changed substantially, but they seem to have remarkably expanded their control over the production and circulation of the staple goods, further enhancing their capacity to interfere in the basic economic life of the population, also by increasingly centralized labor force. A certain degree of possible central intervention or stimulus over agricultural production is also suggested by the results of archaeobotanical and stable isotope studies recently carried out at Aslantepe, indicating a higher water concentration in wheat seeds with respect to barley and to uh, other woods. And the possible sense that means that probably wheat was in irrigated field because it, it, it shows more water than the other plants. Uh, and the possible central influence on primary economy is also shown by a radical change in the animal rearing practices, with a remarkable decrease in the more domestic rearing of pigs in proportion to an extraordinary increase in sheep and goats, indicating a sort of specialized pastoralism. What the archaeological data does not tell us is whether this was the result of any direct control on the part of the central institutions over some of the herdsmen, or whether the central institutions had established new relations with the nomadic pastoralists living in the neighboring mountains uh, of northern and northeastern Anatolia. The external relationship of the site grew considerably in this period, involving mountain groups, perhaps on, of non-sedentary population, moving in the surrounding regions and somehow linked to the north, central and northeastern Anatolian world. The intensive interaction with these groups moving across regions very rich in metal ores is also to be seen in the development of sophisticated metallurgy at Atlantepe in this period. We have different kinds of copper alloy and uh, gold, silver, lead, etc. Notwithstanding the increasing pressure and control exercised by the central leaders on staple production and various resources, such as secondary products of pastoralism and metals, I think that the majority of the population must have continued practicing their agricultural and subsistence activities autonomously in the well-watered Mylatia Plain. These are the uh, now famous uh, group of weapons that we found in the palace where there is the appearance of a sword. 
that is also something very, very early with respect to what we known, we, we knew before. Um, uh, so, um, and it is probable, uh, on the other hand, uh, that, uh, so, this autonomy, autonomy was due to uh, a really easy, uh, practicable agriculture in the plain that was, uh, is, is to today still full of springs uh, and has enough rain too. Um, so, uh, the uh, autonomy retained by this, probably by the local uh, population uh, and also the autonomy that probably uh, the pastoralist groups retained uh, um, give to the central power less strength and stability. Even though the control over staple production may have given the ruling class a greater power over the life of the local people, I think that the new hierarchies on the one hand lacked the solid social base as, for example, a social structure based on hierarchical kinship ties, as it probably was the case in southern Mesopotamia. On the other hand, Atlantepe lacked the urban structure, which had created an organic and strongly integrated political economic system of specialized and inter interdependent sectors, both in the southern alluvian plain and in the, in the Habur region in northern Mesopotamia. While the dimensions of the public area and its activity increased, the whole site became smaller than, than before, um, increasingly keeping the people out of the settlement and excluding them from participating in the most important events and ceremonies of the central institutions. The habitation area of the ordinary people has not yet been found. But if it does exist on the mound, it must have been small in comparison with a public center of such vast proportions. We have therefore to hypothesize that the common population might, might have lived in the plain around the site, probably scattered in small villages and farms. The lack of a real concentration of population in the main political administrative center or around it is one of the characteristic features of the centralized system developed in the Malatya Plain, distinguishing it from the Mesopotamian model in that it is a form of political and economic centralization without urbanization. The society of the Malatya Plain seems to have essentially been a dichotomous society consisting of two main social categories, the dominant elite living on the site and the dominated population that must have lived uh, in scattered villages in the plains surrounding Aslantepe. The early state institution capacity to aggregate and integrate the different productive components was therefore probably limited in the Malatya Plain precisely by the autonomy that the rural and pastoralist population must have managed to retain and by the lack of an integrated urban structure. The increasing demands by the central power may perhaps have become uh, more and more unsustainable generating conflicts that weakened the palace system, increasingly also exposing it to possible outbreaks of conflict with the pastoralists until this caused its definitive collapse. 
the premature establishment of this new type of authority was not accompanied by uh, the balanced growth of the whole social system and the strong economic and political integration of the territory. On the contrary, the new authority seemed to have engendered tensions and conflict causing instability. The Aslantepe Palace was destroyed by a great fire around 3100 BC and the centralized early state system and its culture ended forever in this region. Whereas the development towards more mature states continued both in southern Mesopotamia and in the Habur region in the north, in the areas characterized by remarkable urbanization phenomenon, this means, the precocious manifestation and collapse of Etaslantepe of a palatial system that took place in other regions much later and on more solid uh, urban basis, uh, underscores the complexity and variety of the dynamics that led to the formation of the state and centralized societies in the Near East, uh, outlining non-linear, regionally diversified and experimental processes made of innovative developments as well as of failures. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.